Thank you, guys. Hey, and thanks for those prayers, too. We, we always need them when we go down to Brazil. I always joke that three things always go wrong on every Brazil trip, and we just pray that those three things aren't major. So uh, keep us in your prayers. <clears throat> hey, so we are continuing our series uh, called Redeeming Love. This is a look at the book of Ruth. The, the book of Ruth is a, uh, a book in the Old Testament. It's short. It's about four chapters long. Um, and I encourage you uh, to go back and, and listen to the other two sermons um, of this series. It's been excellent. I've really enjoyed uh, hearing the sermons on chapter one and chapter two. But today we're going to be looking at chapter three. And, and I just want to warn you, I'm going to say right off the bat, that chapter three is scandalous. You laugh, you laugh, but it talks about stuff that you're not supposed to talk about in church. And so I was like trying to figure out how do I navigate, how do I like not talk about those things, but finally I was like, man, it's, it's in the Bible, I should talk about it. So just to be, just so you guys know, I'm just gonna be right up front, there's stuff about sex, there's stuff about immigrants, there's stuff about uh, cultural biases, stuff like that that might step on some of our toes, that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. So I just want to say, if you don't want to hear that stuff, you, you can, okay, all right, you guys are staying, all right. So uh, let me give you a little bit of a, the recap of what's been happening in the story so far. Chapter 1 and Ruth, we, we were introduced to, to Naomi. Uh, Naomi's married, has two sons. She's from Judea, uh, which is the southern kingdom in Israel. She travels with her, her husband and two sons to Moab. Uh, Moab was an enemy country to Israel and Judea. Her two sons marry two Moabite women. And then tragically, her husband and sons die. And so she survived with her two daughters-in-law. And <clears throat> being a widow, uh, especially a foreign widow in this culture, uh, you were like basically helpless. You were hopeless. There was, there was really not much you could do. So she heard that in Bethlehem, there was food. There was, there was like a, a surplus of, of, of food there. So she decided she was going to go back. Naomi thought, I'm going to go back to, 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 to Bethlehem. And uh, one of the daughters, Ruth, decides to go with her. And Naomi tries to talk her out of it. She says, it's not going to be safe for you. You know, you're, you're, you're going to be an enemy in this territory. You, you can't go. And, and Ruth has this beautiful beautiful thing that she says where she says, listen, I am going with you. Your people are going to be my people, and, and I'm going to even, I, I would be willing to die with you, Naomi. You're my family, and your God is my God. And so Ruth and Naomi travel to <clears throat> Bethlehem, and when they get there, Naomi has this passionate speech about how she is being judged by God, that she is bitter, that she feels empty. She says, I am empty. 
And Ruth goes to, to provide and, and, and to, to find some food for them. And so she goes to this field and, and does what's known as gleaming, where she, she gathers some of the food from the edges of the field. And the owner of the field is this man named Boaz. And Boaz sees her and has compassion on her and says, you know what, you feel free, take whatever you need. And he just piles food on her and says, listen, I'm going to care for you. Don't go to some other fields because I can't promise you that you're going to be safe in those other fields. So stay here, I'll care for you. And so Ruth stays there for quite a long time working in the fields under the, the, the kind of provision and, and, and guidance of Boaz. And that's where we pick up in chapter three. Actually, there's one more part. Uh, Ruth goes back to Naomi and says, hey, listen, I've been, let's look at all this stuff we have and look at all this stuff that we've been provided. And she says, what field were you in? Where did you get all that stuff? And, and Ruth says, this guy named Boaz. And Naomi says, oh, Boaz is our guardian, redeemer. And we'll get into what that means later. But essentially what she was saying is, is he is a relative of our deceased husband's. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what guardian redeemer is, but that's where the story leaves off. But let's pick back up in chapter three. But before we do, let's, let me just pray. Holy Spirit, I just invite you here. I pray that you would help your word come alive. And I pray that you would, would uh, just speak to us this morning. In your name, amen. All right, so Ruth chapter 3. <clears throat> One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours, and tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes, and then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are here until he's finished eating and drinking. Okay, let's stop for a moment. So Ruth goes to Naomi, and, and Naomi says, Ruth, we need to find you a husband. And this is different than when your mom says, when are you going to get married? Um, essentially, what, what Naomi was saying is, listen, Ruth, we, we both know that in this culture, it is hard to be a widow. It is hard. It, it's difficult to be a woman. It's difficult to, to be an immigrant. It's difficult to be all of these things. And, and we need to make sure that you're being cared for. I know right now, Boaz is caring for you. But we don't know how long that will last. We need to make sure that you get married. And so she tells her to wash and put on perfume. This wasn't Naomi's way of saying, Ruth, you stink. This was actually a, a, a very important thing. See, when someone became a widow, culturally, what they would do at this time was they would begin to wear very muted clothing. They would stop wearing perfume, and it was their way of com communicating to the rest of society that I am grieving and I am mourning. 
And then at one point when they would decide, if they decided that they were ready to kind of get back on the market and say, I'm ready to remarry, they would begin to wear more colorful clothing and they would begin to wear perfume again to kind of communicate like, okay, the, the grieving process has come to an end and now I'm ready to remarry. So, so Naomi's saying, hey, Ruth, we need to get you back on the market. And so she says, Boaz is, is winnowing down at the threshing floor. This was this process of, of separating the chaff from the barley. And she says, go down there. And let's see what else she says, starting in verse 4. It says, when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Okay, hold up. So you might be reading this and thinking, this sounds a little scandalous. And you would be right. This is very scandalous. In fact, if you were the original audience, uh, you, would, you would be able to perceive a lot of things that we don't today by the way this is written. So the language that the author is using is extremely sensual, erotic language. And I think he's doing it for a purpose that we'll talk about a little later, but he is using very sensual language when he says, go and uncover his feet and lie down. These weren't just like technical Things. These were sensu- this was very sensual language. And so if you were reading this and, 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 and at this time, you would be like, oh man, I know what's about to happen. This is about to get crazy. And so it says that to note the place where Boaz lied down. I love that. It's like, don't go lay down with someone else. Make sure you know where Boaz is. So verse 7, it says, When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lied down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. All right, so this is intense. There's a lot of stuff that I want to unpack in this little paragraph here. But one thing that all week as I was reading it, the line, who are you, just kind of tickled me. I thought that was really funny that the first thing that Boaz said was, who are you? And I don't know what his tone of voice was, but it was funny to me. Maybe it's not funny to you. Uh, (laughs) But there's some really important stuff in this. The first thing that I think that we notice is that, did you notice that Ruth deviates from the plan that Naomi set out? Naomi said, you know, go uncover his feet and lie down and then don't do anything, just wait. And he'll know what to do. But what does Ruth do? She goes and says, spread the corn of your garment over me since you are the guardian redeemer of our family. Now, those things may not make a whole lot of sense to us, but those were very bold things for a woman to say in this culture. This was very, Ruth was just becoming very bold and courageous in this moment. Basically, what these things mean is guardian redeemer was a term that was a biblical law that God put in place for family to care for those who were in need. 
It was law that God put in place. He said that there had to be a guardian redeemer and a family. And and some of the jobs of, of guardian redeemers was if someone was sold into slavery, that there would be a member of the family that would purchase them out of slavery. This was biblical law that you would care for, for, for the people and your family. Now what this was referring to was there was an aspect of being a guardian redeemer that when a woman, if she lost her husband, if she was widowed, the guardian redeemer would be a relative of the man who passed. If he was able, he would marry the widow to care for her. And this can feel like unromantic. I understand that this feels like, well, that's weird. But really what this was, was was caring for women in that society. Women were often looked at as cattle or as less than human, and that if if whatever happened to them just happened. But this was God's way of saying, we we need to make sure we care for those who, who aren't able in this culture to care for themselves. So Ruth says, you are the guardian redeemer. And then says, spread your garment over me. This was a phrase that basically meant, put me under your protection. It actually meant, marry me. This was a phrase that meant, marry me. Or if you would say that someone was under someone else's garment, that would mean they were married. In our culture, we have phrases like that too. We might say, they tied the knot. Right? And then maybe in a, a couple thousand years, if someone was reading a text and it said, so-and-so and so-and-so tied the knot, we would be like, I don't know what that means. But in our culture, we understand that. And they would have, in that culture too, that Ruth basically goes to this wealthy, land-owning man and says, you are the guardian redeemer, you have a responsibility, now marry me. <laughs> yeah. In our culture, that would be intense. But in that culture, man, can you imagine what the repercussions could have been for for Ruth? Boaz could have been like, I have been patient. I have cared for you. And now you have the audacity to come to me? Like, what right do you have to come to me? See, it was the man's responsibility to do that. Again, women were property. And Boaz could have, he could have taken advantage of her. He could have took her as a slave. He could have raped her. He could have killed her. He could have thrown her to, said, you're off on your own now. He could have done all kinds of things, but he didn't. And I kind of built up that this was kind of this sexual thing that was happening. But but it really, this is what happens. That, that Boaz sees Ruth come and, and ask this really bold question. And I just, wanna, I just want us to store that in the back of our mind, that Ruth was bold. Ruth was courageous. And let's see how Boaz responds. Verse 10, it says, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. The kindness is greater than which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Boaz really honors Ruth in this. And what seemed like was building into like maybe this really kind of crazy 
situation that was going to be very sexual actually ends up to be this very honoring, honoring thing. Yeah. So Boaz, he, he says that he, he calls her daughter. He speaks of her kindness, of her noble character. This word kindness that he says to her, it's a really, it's a really cool word. It doesn't have a great translation. Um, oftentimes it gets translated to kindness. Sometimes it'll say loving kindness. And actually this word is a word called hesed. And it's oftentimes, most often, used to describe God and his loving kindness. But it doesn't just mean nice and kind. It means faithful and gracious and noble and, 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 and merciful and all of these good attributes rolled into one. And this is not the first time that Boaz refers to Ruth using this word hesed. He says, you are, you are an incredible person, Ruth. And he honors her. And again, he could have done, he could have reacted in so many different ways, but he reacts to just honor her. Go on in verse 12, it says, although it is true that I am a guardian, redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian, redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So lie here until morning. So essentially what Boaz is saying is, I'm going to make sure you're taken care of, Ruth. But by law, there's another person who's actually legally your guardian, guardian redeemer. But if he doesn't take responsibility, then I will. I will care for you. So verse 14, it says, So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And, and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he also said, bring me the shawl you were wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And then he went back to town. He's continuing to care for her, provide for her. Again, not taking advantage of her, not throwing her out. He's continuing his, his, his care for her. And, and I, he's also concerned and, and, and he cares about how people see her and what people think about her. So he says, no one must know that you did this or they might get the wrong idea. Verse 16. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Okay, I want to stop there. So I love that Boaz is, is referring to this other guardian redeemer saying, I'm going to handle talking to that person. Don't do what you did tonight. It might not work out the same way. I'll handle it. And then he says, I don't want you to go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And I think that phrase is important. Because remember how Naomi described herself. Naomi said, I am empty. And here is Boaz saying, I don't want her to be empty. I'm not only here for you, Ruth, but I want to, to, to be here for your mother-in-law as well. And in verse 18, it says, Naomi said, 
Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until this matter is settled today. And then the chapter ends, and we find out what happened next week. (laughs) I love this story. I love just reading the Bible and just seeing the story unfold. I love putting myself, can you imagine how it must have felt to be Ruth in this situation, the, the fear, the waiting, the anxiety? But I think there's so much that we miss reading it, you know, a few thousand years later. We miss so many of the nuanced things in there, like we saw earlier with a couple of things. But one of the things that we miss is this story actually mirrors another story in the Bible. And the language that they use is very similar language. That the author purposely uses very similar language to another story that you can read about in Genesis 19. And while I kind of teased that this story was very sexual, the story in, in Genesis 19 is crazy. It is crazy. And I'll paraphrase it a little bit, but if you read it, you're going to blush, I promise. It's the story of Lot and his daughters. And so Lot is this man and, and, and his daughters, basically they get him drunk and he passes out and they, they sleep with him. And one of the daughters gets pregnant with a, with, with a son named Moab. And you might think, oh, that name sounds familiar. Why does that name sound familiar? That name sounds familiar because Moab is the place where Ruth is from. See, Moab is Ruth's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. And the author intentionally is using language that is referring back to this story of Lot and his scandalous daughters and the history of the Moabite people. And the reason he's doing it is because he's playing on people's cultural biases and their assumptions about who the Moabites are. And so as they were reading the story, the people would begin to think, yep, here's another Moabite woman about to do something crazy. Here's another Moabite woman about to take advantage of someone. I know how these Moabites are. And I think that that's why the author was using such sensual, erotic language at the beginning, because he was trying to lead people down this path to start realizing their prejudice, their their way of thinking about the Moabite people. And the Bible does this regularly. The Bible is constantly talking about people that, that the culture would look down upon and breaking down cultural biases. Breaking down prejudice. If you read the Bible, the, 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 the people that Jesus spent time with, the people that were oftentimes elevated were, were people that were, were you know, put into a corner or, or looked down on. Like the Romans or the Samaritans or women or, or, or lepers or all kinds of people, tax collectors. And this is important. This is something that the Bible does over and over again. I remember a few years ago, my wife, Laura, was with our daughter, Olive, at the grocery store. 
And there was a, a little black boy at the grocery store who was doing something that was a little dangerous or something. And, and Olive, my little daughter, I think she was like three at the time or something, said, oh, no, little brown boy. And it was sweet. It was a cute little thing. And it was innocent. But what Laura picked up on was what was different for Olive with this, this little boy was the color of his skin. But that, that stood out to, to my daughter, Olive. And, and there's nothing wrong with noticing differences in people. But it was the fact that that was the difference that Olive noticed. It wasn't little boy with the red shirt. It wasn't, you know, little boy with dark hair or little boy. It was little boy with brown skin. And so what uh, Laura decided was, oh man, our, our you know, inner circle of friends, we need to have more people of color, more people who look different and, and, and are raised in different cultures and maybe speak differently. We need to, we need to have our family kind of expand the, the, the scope of who we spend time with. And so she purposely, it, it started meeting people and, and making friends with people who are different who came from different backgrounds, who, who were different races, who, who came from different countries, and, so, and we would have them over to our homes to eat, and we would go to their homes, and, and we began spending time more and more with people of different cultures, and, and I am so appreciative that Lara invited me into this thing that she, that, she, that she felt like God was pushing her into. And I don't say this to, sit, to like, you know, toot our own horns and say, hey, we're... We're pretty woke, or like, we, you know, the reason I'm saying this is because what happened was we began to realize these blind spots that we had. We began to realize these cultural biases that we had. And, and if you would have asked us maybe four years ago if we were prejudiced or if we were racist or anything like that, we would say, of course not. We love all people the same. But being forced in these situations and putting ourselves in these situations, we begin to realize judgments that we did have and subconscious ways of thinking that we were even unaware of. And it was really challenging for us, and we were still being challenged, but it's so cool. Like, if you come to, like, my little girl, Olive, if you come to one of her birthday parties, it's like the United Nations. It really is, and it's beautiful, and it's cool. And I'm so glad that, that Laura kind of started this journey. And here's what I love is the Bible is very similar. The Bible regularly says that God's heart is to tear down our culture's way of thinking is to tear down the, 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 the people, uh, the, 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 the boundaries of, of, of separating people. Women, immigrants, poor, sick. All throughout scripture, we see that the widow, the orphan, the, the foreigner, the poor, the neglected, the, 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 the sick, the outcast are regularly valued and cared for by God. I love, I mean, you could pick one of hundreds of verses, but Deuteronomy chapter 10 
It says, he makes sure that orphans and widows are treated fairly. He loves the foreigners who live with our people and gives them food and clothes. So then, show love for those foreigners because you were once a foreigner in Egypt. God is saying, marginalized people are my people. I care for those people. I love those people. I love the foreigner. I love the refugee. I love the, the sick. I love the people who are, who are pushed aside by society. Those are my people. I mean, we look at Ruth. Ruth checked so many of those boxes. She was a woman. She was an immigrant. She was poor. She was an orphan. She was a widow. And God says, I, I care about this woman. And not only do I care for her and want to provide for her, but I want, I want her to be used. I want her to participate in my redemptive story. That Ruth gets to become a hero in the faith. God writes marginalized people into the story into his story. God says, I'm not going to just care for you. I want you to participate with me. I want you to labor with me. I mean, I love that in the time that this was written, in the time that the Bible was written, if you read contemporary literature at that time or contemporary stories of how women were treated, again, like all around the world, women were, were, were property at this point. But if you read the Bible, you see women who are leaders, you see women who are prophets, you see women who were teachers, you see women who were evangelists, you see women being redeemed by the story of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Now what this is not saying is that we're not different. This is not saying that there's no such thing as gender. This is not saying that it doesn't matter what culture you come from. What it's saying is not one culture or gender or race or whatever is elevated over another. It's saying that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen. That we are different together. That our differences should not separate us, but our differences are this beautiful, beautiful tapestry of, uh, of the picture of God. That as we come together, we better reflect the, the, this vast, infinite God. So it's not saying that Jews and, and Gentiles aren't different and, and slaves and free aren't different and male and female are different. It's just saying Jews not better than Gentile. Slaves not better than free, that we are all one. We are all one. 
And that's one of the things that, that really, that as, as Laura began this process and invited me into it, I began to see uh, like so many of the, the, the similarities between people that we, we have so many similar fears and similar insecurities and similar hopes and dreams, but I also started seeing so many differences as well. And how beautiful it is that we could be together in our differences and that we are truly better together. And so just even speaking about women, let me just say, women here today, I, you, you don't, I, I know you don't need my permission. And so I'm not, I'm not giving you permission, but let me just say, in our church, in the kingdom of God, you are not less than. You are not uh, less than man. You're not. And you don't need my permission, but God has given you permission. God has created you for amazing things. We need strong women pastors. We need women teachers. We need mothers. We need, we need women evangelists. We need women business owners. We need women to, 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 to know the permission that God has given to you. My, fra- my favorite preacher in this church is a woman. It's my mom. If you're new, man, you got to go back a few years. Go listen to some of our podcasts from a few years ago. Look at Penny Meyer. They'll knock your socks off, man. The same message goes to people of color. If you're a person of color here today, we need you. You don't need my permission, but God has given you permission. If you are a person who's from a different country, if you are a a person who who struggles with the the language, if you are a person that has been marginalized in any way, shape, or form by our culture or some other culture, I just want to say I'm sorry, and you are valued and seen by the king. And this this isn't my thoughts. This is the Bible. This is what the Bible teaches. This, the message of the kingdom is that the, the outcast is no longer the outcast. The same message goes for the widow. The same goes to the young, to the poor, to the old, to the, to the painfully shy, to, the, to those with, with mental illness, to those with physical illnesses, to all people. God sees you. God values you. God cares for you and God is inviting you into his story and has beautiful things for you to participate with him in. And it also goes to people with questionable pasts. It's for people who have done things that they feel ashamed of. Do you know, here's something I love. Do you ever wonder why Boaz was so kind and generous and caring for Ruth? Maybe it's because he was a really nice guy, but I, I, I think the reason he was so kind and generous to Ruth was because, do you know who his mo- mother was? Boaz's mom, we can read about it in Matthew chapter one. There's a genealogy that tells us who his mother was. It was Rahab. Boaz's mother was Rahab, and some of you know who that is. Some of you don't. Rahab was a prostitute immigrant from Jericho. That was Boaz's mother. 
And she was a prostitute who God had favor on and used and valued. But you're thinking, wait, God doesn't use people like that. Yes, he does. He uses me. He uses you. We are all like that. We are all broken people that God chooses to use. In our brokenness. If God only used people that had their stuff together, then he'd be twiddling his thumbs until eternity. God uses the broken, the marginalized, the the lost, the last. If you look at the people that Jesus chose to be his disciples, it is like a motley crew of, of religious zealots to political nut jobs to, you know, tax... I'm serious. It's, it's like a crazy list of people. If it was written in our culture today, it would pick... We would be offended. It would offend our sensibility who Jesus would choose to be his inner circle. We'd say, but not those people. Not those people. You're not your past. You're not the best thing you've done. You're not the worst thing that you've done. Do you know who you are? You're an image bearer of the king. You are a son. You are a daughter of the living God. The one who sits on the throne. You are his son. You are his daughter. You're not, the, you're not your past. A lot of you guys know my story. I've shared bits and pieces of it, but I walked away from the Lord. I grew up in a Christian home, but when I walked away from the Lord, I got buck wild, guys. I was crazy. I was, I was drinking, doing drugs, hooking up with, with women. I was just out of control. And I, I had this radical experience where God just grabbed my heart and called me into his ministry. But the first time I preached, I was about a year removed from that lifestyle. I was about a year removed. And I remember sitting up on stage preaching this message and I looked at the back of the congregation and I saw a woman who knew me from my past. And I say past, it was like, 12 months before. But she knew me. She knew like the, the worst things that I had done. She, she knew like that I was just a broken person. And I remember as I saw her, my stomach just dropped. And I was like, oh no. She knows who you really are. And the enemy began to speak to me and say things like, you, who do you think you are? You think you deserve to be up here? You think you're better than these people? You think you're, 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 you like have it all together? You, this is who you really are. This is who you really are. And I remember while I was preaching, having this kind of conversation with the enemy. And instead of when he said, like, you don't deserve to, to be here. Instead of me saying, yes, I do. I said, oh, you're right. I don't deserve it. I'm not good enough. But he is. He is good enough. 
That is the gospel message. Guys, the gospel message, the message that we have, the gem that we get to share with the world is that we have a God who is no longer holding man's sin against them. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. And we have a God that is breaking down the dividing walls that separate the people and saying, my people are all one. That is beautiful. That is the gem that we have as the people of God. God cares for the, the, the last, the least, the lost. He cares for the marginalized of society. He cares for the Ruths. He cares for them. And that's the call of, of God in our life. And here's what I love is that God doesn't just use Ruth in this story. But he but he also uses Boaz. That he doesn't just use the marginalized, he uses those with privilege as well and those who have. He uses the haves and the haves not, have not. So whatever boat you're in today, you can be used by God. God used Boaz to care for this poor immigrant woman. I remember... Um, it's, 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 I've heard a lot of talks like this, and I know easily, and maybe many of you are going there and you think I'm saying something political, but I just want to say I'm not saying anything political at all. I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about government policies. I'm not talking about you know, our borders or welfare or, or anything. I'm not Here's what I think, is I think those issues are complicated, and I think there are people who are well more, or who are far more uh, qualified to talk about those things than I am. I have opinions on them, and I'm sure you do too, and, and, and it's okay to have opinions on them, but here, here's what I don't think is complicated, is how you as an individual speak about immigrants, how you care about the refugee, how you care about someone of a different culture, or how you, you know, choose to live your life. That, what we can control is how you act and how I act and how this church behaves. God, political policies are, that's above my pay grade. But what we can talk about is what we do as individuals. That we need to be a church that cares about the refugee. We need to be a church that cares about the hungry. We need to be a church that cares about racial reconciliation. We need to be a church that cares about the sick in our, in our, in our country and the hungry because we have a God who deeply cares for those people. When this text and really the whole Bible really redefines and challenges the way that culture sees those people, the way that culture treats women, the way that culture treats the marginalized. And let, let me just say the church is kind of a checkered past in this. It's kind of a mixed bag. That the church has traditionally done a lot of really great things. Like, like with hospitals and humanitarian efforts. Is a lot of those have started in the church. And I'm a church guy. I love the church. But also, the church has done a lot in the way of furthering marginalization. There's a lot of propaganda that the church has bought into over the course of history and even in current day. That is, what it is doing is it's further, furthering marginalization and pushing people down and pushing people away. 
But let me just say, uh, all marginalized people, whether even if they have marginalized themselves, are so valued by God. The addict is valued by God. The prostitute is valued by God. The one who's living the lifestyle of sin that you find detestable is valued by God and all of those people are image bearers of the king. So I want to issue a challenge for us that we would be people that with whatever privilege, whatever, you know, things we have that we've been blessed with, we would use it that would not further benefit us, but that would guard and redeem those who are marginalized. Use it in a way that would honor God and that would honor others. Just, I'll share another little story. When I was, a number of years ago, I was driving around downtown, and I almost feel embarrassed sharing this story with you guys, but I was driving around downtown, and I saw a woman on the side of the street, and in one hand she was holding a baby, and in the other hand she was smoking a cigarette. And I watched the smoke just billowing into the baby's face, and you, my thought was this, what a piece of trash. And I feel almost embarrassed saying that, but I felt immediately, you know what God said to me? She is not a piece of trash. She is my daughter. I love her. And it was actually probably the most harsh I've ever heard the Lord speak to me. And he said, you do not dehumanize any person ever. You don't call someone a piece of trash. You don't call someone a dog. You don't call someone something that dehumanizes them. That is my daughter. And so let me ask you, how do you speak about immigrants? How do you speak about refugees? How do you speak about the poor on the corner of the street who, who are begging for money? How do you speak about the LGBT community? How do you speak about you know, those who are in need and need assistance? How do, you, how do you speak about women, men in the room? Listen, how does your internet history communicate you see women? Does it say that you value them or that you objectify them? God is inviting us into this beautiful story of, of redeeming the world, just as Ruth was redeemed, to care for those who are in need. Jesus essentially one time said to his followers, he said, the way that you treat these people is basically the way that you treat me. He says, what you, this is in Matthew 25, by the way, but he says, the, what you do for the, these people is what you do for me. And what you don't do for these people is what you don't do for me. God cares for the marginalized. God values those who have been pushed to the edges of society. I love, this is a core value of the vineyard movement. Did you guys know that? This is a core value of who we are as the vineyard. If you go to Vineyard USA and look at our website, one of, one of our values says this. It says, we lean towards the lost, the poor, the outcast, and the outsider with the compassion of Jesus as sinners whose only standing before God is utterly dependent on the mercy of God. This mercy can only be truly received in as much as we are willing to give it away. 
In other words, we as a church movement, we as the vineyard, we as VCDC, we as individuals in this church, we lean towards those who are suffering. We don't push them away. We lean towards those who are suffering, who are weak in society, who are marginalized in society, and we do so not because we believe we can fix them. We don't do it because we think we are better than them. We lean towards the poor, the outcast, the the outsider, the marginalized, because we ourselves have experienced the kindness and mercy of God. God says we were all outsiders who have been invited in. And so we extend that same mercy to those who have been pushed to the the edges of society. And so here's how I want to end. I just want to take a moment and for us to, 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 to let that sit for a moment and just in silence. And I feel, like, I feel like God wants to challenge the way we think about other people. And right, right as we began to do that, I just felt like God wanted to say, the way you think about the opposite political party, <laughs> if you're liberal, the way you think about Republicans, if you're conservative, the way that you think about Democrats, if you're, if you're wealthy, the way that you think about the poor, if maybe if you're poor, the way you think about the wealthy, or, or you know, all of those things. Who do, you, who do you have judgment in your heart towards? Maybe it's immigrants. Maybe it's people of a different country. Maybe it's an individual. Maybe it's not a people group. Maybe it's uh, your, your boss or your ex-husband. Or the kid at school who just won't leave you alone. And God said, I didn't just come for those who have it all together. I've I've come for the, the last, the least, and the lost. I've come for all people. And the person that you look down your nose at, I love that person. And they are created in my image. So let's just be silent for a moment and let the Lord minister to that.